Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you made it out early today, or is it on time? It's so hard to tell on these days. And with everyone being sick, too, it's, uh, it's good to see you here today. Our key scripture today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors promised you Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts Impress them on your children Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I want you to take a moment this morning to consider the cycle, the everyday pattern of your life. If you were to sit back and think about it, you could probably describe to me what would happen every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Maybe you have a couple wild cards in there on Saturday. I don't know. Maybe you're going crazy. But our lives fall into patterns and cycles so that if we needed to, we could probably describe to someone what our average any given day looks like. Yeah? Or maybe is this just me? Can you, can you, could you do that? Um, and sometimes it feels like uh, my days are kind of repetitive, like I'm doing the same things over and over again. You know, not only is my schedule dictated by uh, when I need to be here at work, it's dictated by when my children get off of school, it's dictated by when Nisha gets home and then whatever's going on that night, whether it's homework or basketball practice or baseball practice or uh, a meeting or something else, there are always these things that are moving my life. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm just kind of holding on for the ride. God gave his people specific instructions about what their day was supposed to be like. God wanted them to have a specific rhythm to their day. He wanted to be the music that was constantly playing in the background. And to this end, God gave these commands. Make the story of God, the story that you tell in your homes, wear the story of God on your hands and on your forehead Whatever you do, whatever people see, and have the story written on the inside and the outside of your home. Now, you may or may not be aware of this, but some Jews follow this quite literally. Uh, There is, uh, in any really practicing uh, Jew's house, you can find on their door frame something that's called a mezuzah, which is a small box that can 
be made of any number of things. Um, we have one that's made of, uh, it's a white ceramic one with gold on the front that one of my friends gave me. And the mezuzah is a small box that fits behind, or beside the door, and inside it are the words of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Along with Deuteronomy 11, chapters, or Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 21. And this prayer is known as the Shema, and it's put there next to the door. And in the Jewish, uh, in the Jewish practice, they've already had this all memorized. They know what it is. And so every time they walk by and they see it, they touch it, and they say the prayer in their heads. Every time they leave the house. That's the theory behind it. It goes even further with uh, phylacteries, which, uh, as, as God said here, tie them on your hands and on your forehead. There are people that, w- that literally do that. They wear uh, boxes on their, on their arms, uh, they wear a box on their forehead, and they carry scripture around them with them wherever they go. Now to us, these things might seem like it's a bit much, a little bit over the top. I mean, after all, we don't need to go quite that far to remember God, right? But to God's point, I think that he was this explicit for one very important reason. And that is this. If we do not take intentional steps to keep God at the front and center of our lives, then he simply won't be. Because the urgency of what needs to be done is almost always going to take his place. And that's in the best case scenarios where we don't make something more important than him. We will forget about him. We won't have time for him. We will live our lives and we will pass to God whatever we have left over. And the music that is playing in the background, the rhythm that we dance to is not God's song. It is someone else's song. If that's the case, then what do we do about it? I'd like if you uh, have your phone with you today, if you have a smartphone, pull it out for a second. You don't need to turn it on, but you know when you have your phone and you, before you unlock it or do whatever, there's a picture on your screen. Maybe it's your grandchild, maybe it's several grandchildren, maybe it's someone else's grandchildren, I don't know, but our grandchildren are often involved in this thing. So what could you do? Here's one example of something you could do. You could take this passage and make it your lock screen. How many times do you look at your phone during the day? Don't make it your home screen, because there's all kinds of stuff on top of it. But if you were to make it your lock screen, then every time you pulled out your phone and looked at it, guess what would be staring you in the face? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That has to be a wallpaper somewhere. And if it's not, write it in a note, take a picture of it, and then put it there. You can't get around this. There's no way to do this. But there's a question that really sits out in front of us. What do we intentionally do every moment of every day to put God at the forefront of who we are and what we are doing? Are we carrying his story on our foreheads 
So that when people see us, they see the story of God. Our, is his story on our hands? So that whatever we touch and whatever we do, people are hearing the story of God. Is it written on the door frames of our homes? So that when people come in and out, they hear the story of God. Is it written on the gates outside of our homes? So that when people drive by, they hear the story of God. Are we that serious about living the rhythm of God? We should be. So uh, we are in the midst of a series called The Story. Uh, and the story encourages us to look at the Bible as one uh, large narrative. Um, and, and I said this a lot really early on, but we tend to, when we read the Bible, we tend to open it up and look for passages that say a specific thing, you know, that, that speak to a certain issue or that, give us, that gives us specific information. And what the story is encouraging us to do is to recognize uh, that the Bible is really one big story with characters, a plot, a beginning, a middle, and end, and we've been looking at the story in that way. And so we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, this, is, this is our eighth week uh, here in the story. As you know, we are covering this for 100 weeks. And, um, well, you know, it's, it's an arbitrary number. Um, as we've seen from the beginning, the story is really about God. Uh, he is the main character. And he created humanity, he created the world, he created everything, but he created us specifically so that he could be in relationship with us. His great desire was to be known by his creation. He wanted to reveal himself as a loving, providing, and wonderful God. But things went off the rails pretty quickly, and humanity turned away from God time and time again. And we saw that the character of God, as he develops in the story, that God becomes hurt, frustrated, angry. Uh, he takes all kinds of different actions to try to make this thing with humanity work. He kind of erases the board with a flood and starts over. He goes back to one family and starts with them, but it takes him generations to build up the nation of Israel, which we are finally learning about and walking with now. But we have seen time and time again that God makes these huge efforts, that God tries to make himself known and humanity doesn't respond in the way that we as readers would like for them to. They, they, keep, they keep walking away from God. They keep choosing other gods. They keep turning to any other answer beside him. And it's important for us, again, to understand the effect that this has on God, who is the main character. God is hurt. He is frustrated. But he is longing for this relationship with humanity to exist in the way that he wants it to. He wants to be close to his creation. He wants to know us and he wants to be known by us. And that is sort of the journey we've seen him try to take these people on. As they wandered through the wilderness, as they took the promised land. And God had sent the Israelites after he delivered them from Egypt. He took them to the base of the mountain. They worshipped the golden calf. 
but he had patience with them still. And it wasn't until they finally went too far with God that he decided to wipe out that entire generation. So they wander in the desert until that generation is gone. And the question that we had was, would the next generation that was going to rise up, would they believe in God? And we saw that they did. The generation that was led by Joshua, that took the people into the promised land. The people followed God's lead and God kept all of his promises. He gave his people the land and he led them to victory after victory. Now, we talked about part of the difficulty of the people of Israel taking the promised land. And one of the big difficulties that we have uh, looking back at it today is that there were people who were living in the land. And what were God's instructions? What were the Israelites to do with the people that were living in the land? They were to destroy them. Men, women, children, animals, raise the cities to the ground, get everything out of the way. The people who inhabited the land had their own way of doing things along with their own gods. And God wanted his people to be set apart to serve him only. So he commanded that the cultures in this area be removed from the picture so that there would not be any distractions. And we went into great detail about this last week. And we talked about why God did this. And we talked about what his concerns were. But we also came down to the core question of Are we going to allow God to be God? Are we going to allow him to make the decisions that he believes are necessary? And one of the key things we came to is that God believed this decision to wipe out these people who worshipped other gods. He believed that this decision was absolutely necessary in order to keep his own people from following other gods. Remember we talked about it's almost like he was trying to create some sort of protective bubble around them. If you walk in with me and you destroy all those things, then you will be mine and you won't fall to other influences. But this week we have to answer the question, was God justified in being so concerned? And we have an answer to that question. Was God justified in being so concerned about his people being exposed to other things? So this week we are looking at the book of Judges. And believe it or not, we are only going to read one passage from the book of Judges. I know that's weird because we've been covering so much ground each week. So much ground each week. But this week we're just going to read one passage and it actually comes from Judges chapter 2. And here's what the story of the book of Judges entails. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, they're talking about um, Joshua's generation, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. 
They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Israelites did evil in the eyes the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. That is the introduction to Judges. But it actually tells the entire story of Judges, which is kind of an interesting thing for us to see. Again, we need to put this back into context for a second. What has just happened in the story? God has led the Israelites into the promised land and they have had victory after victory after victory. And God won all of these victories for them. Remember the first city they came to was which city? Jericho, which had a huge wall that God knocked down for them. It was an overwhelming moment of fulfillment, both for God and his people. God had promised them that they would be a nation. God had promised them that they would have a land. And they had finally gone into this place, and they had taken the land, and they were now a nation, a people. They had become everything that they had ever dreamed of. And you would think, I would think, that the afterglow of that moment would last a while. But this is such a convicting statement to me. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. The next generation did not know God and did not know what he had done. The next generation. Now, let's take a moment to define a couple of things that you may not be familiar with. In particular, uh, the writer of Judges lists the Baals and the Asherah. You may be familiar with uh, who Baal is. Asherah was uh, a Canaanite mother goddess mentioned in uh, their different uh, religious texts. She was a goddess of the sea and associated with Baal. And uh, they built idols to Asherah, which were basically wooden poles. Um, you, may, you may sort of remember the reference throughout the Old Testament of the Asherah pole. Um, but they would have sometimes one pole next to um, 
um, an altar of some kind, or they would have an entire grove that was dedicated to uh, Asherah. And the Israelites, when they went into Canaan, they were commanded to cut down all of the Asherah and to burn them to the ground. Now, Baal was the name of the most prominent Canaanite god, and he's the one that you hear about the most. Uh, he kind of had several different forms, but he was the god of fertility in the Canaanite god world. There was more than one, okay? And he was the god of fertility within uh, that sphere. Um, and his sphere of fertility included agricultural, uh, animal husbandry, and uh, human sexuality. So here was the deal. Anytime you wanted, if you're Canaanite, anytime you wanted your crops to grow, you would make a sacrifice to Baal. Anytime you wanted your animals to reproduce, you would make a sacrifice to Baal. Anytime you wanted more children, you would sacrifice to Baal. So Baal became sort of this god of being prosperous. So you had to pay attention to him as a Canaanite if you wanted to have more stuff in this world. These were the gods and idols that the Israelites would have been most exposed to during their journey into Canaan. And these are the things that God had told them to destroy. And here is something that is so crazy to think about. There was a faithful, an unfaithful generation that wandered in the wilderness. There was a faithful generation that followed, that followed God into the promised land. And the very next generation, as we said, knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. After all that had happened, how could they not know? How could they not remember? And it makes a state, it should, I think, make a statement pop out to you. Do you remember what Moses told the Israelites when they were on the cusp of going into the promised land the first time? We read it this morning. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. It's good if you remember that statement because they didn't remember that statement. They clearly forgot to do this. And here's what is so awful about it. This movement into the promised land was supposed to be a defining moment for them. Their deliverance from Egypt is a defining moment, one that they still look back on today. The taking of the promised land and becoming a nation was supposed to be a defining moment. Yet within one generation, people did not pass the story on so that this next generation that rose up did not know what God had done. How is that possible? That they did not know what God had done. From one generation to the next, their communal identity centered on the book of the law, on obedience to God, on coming into this place just seemed to be wiped away. The Lord had called the people of Israel out of the nations to have a distinct voice and presence in the world. But what we find is that they increasingly look more and more like everyone else. They look less like what God wants them to be and more like whatever is around them. And there is a simple reason for this, and I wish it was more complicated, but it's not. It is this painfully simple. They forgot about God. They forgot about God. And when they forgot, they reached for whatever was closest to them. 
Think about the audacity of believing you need to make a sacrifice to a golden animal of some kind so that you would prosper when your God just gave you an entire land. Why? Why why would you need to do that? They forgot. They forgot. And when they forgot, they didn't tell. And when they didn't tell, the story was lost. And when the story was lost, the people of God reached for whatever Asherah pole or golden animal was close at hand. It seems like God may not have been extreme enough in his efforts to put his people in a safe place if within one generation they are already worshiping Canaanite gods as a whole. What do we do with that? (laughs) There is a definitive cycle that is displayed throughout the book of Judges. And it starts with that one simple concept. They forget about God. Now, let's talk about ourselves for a second. Unfortunately, I think we can understand this piece all too well, although we don't want to associate ourselves with the people of Israel at this point. It's a bad look to associate ourselves with them. But there is something about us that is prone to forget God. We celebrate God when he does something good in our lives. We cry out to God when we are in need. But what happens with the rest of the time? Once we feel good about something, once we feel like things are steady, once God has come in and done his work, we don't feel like we need his help as much. We get this feeling like we have things under control. We stop talking to him. We get too busy. We have things to do. We have families. We have work. And when this happens, when we fall into the rhythm of our everyday life, the first thing we do is stop dancing to God's music. We live by our own rhythm. We live by our own rhythm. And God's rhythm is something completely different. And do you know what? It feels like if we try to dance to God's rhythm, we lose the rhythm of the now. And what do we most often choose if we are forced to? It feels like we choose the now. We forget. We forget how helpless we are on our own. We forget how much we need God's help. And we see this reflected in the story. The people settled into the land. They were victorious. And then they did the worst possible thing they could. They began to just live their lives. And they forgot about the God who gave everything to them. And to add insult to injury, when the people of God forgot about the one true God, they reached out to other gods and began to worship him. Now, from a character standpoint, this is not such a huge surprise for us, is it? Unfortunately, no. I mean, we've seen this kind of thing play out. What's most interesting at this point is God's response, because God responds in a way that we have not seen quite yet. 
at least not on this scale. God gets angry. Does God have a right to be angry? Yes. Very much so. They don't know who he is or what he's done. And he has done amazing things. So God is angry. When the people forgot about all that he had done, God does something really, really interesting. He gives them over to their doubts and their forgetfulness. He doesn't send lightning from the sky. There's no pillar of fire or huge cloud. There's no burning bush. There's no lightning striking a mountain. He did not try to win them back with impressive displays of power. He did not try to prove himself to them again. He had already done this over and over again. And instead, he makes this decision. He says, if you don't want me, then fine. You don't have to have me. If you don't want me, you don't have to have me. It's not like he ran off. But they forgot that the very ground they lived on and called their own was given to them by God. So instead of trying to win their affection, he did something completely different. He removed his presence from them. And the book of Judges says that in some cases he actually fought against them. Empowered their enemies. Empowered their enemies. So that this proud nation of people with his huge land were defeated time and time again. Because God was not with them. What makes them a nation? Is it that they're a big group of people? Is it that they have land? What makes them special at all? They haven't won a single military victory on their own. They probably couldn't win tic-tac-toe on their own. It is God who did it all. And so God removes his presence and then ensures that they lose. Because this is what it means to go this road without him. Out of all the people on the earth, they are called to be his. And if they don't want to be his, fine. But this is what it means. I am no longer with you. Why does God respond in this way? Why does he give them up? God wanted them to understand how utterly bankrupt their lives were without them. He wanted them to see the difference that it makes to have God on their side. And sometimes, isn't it true that we don't realize what it means to have God on our side until we live without him? I wish we didn't have to learn things that way. But God knows this, that sometimes we learn how much we need him by living without him. And so he wants them to learn this lesson and then he wants them to do one simple thing. He wants them to remember he is the God who delivered them from Egypt. He is the God who led them to this place. He is the God who gave them the land. He made them a people. And if they would listen to him once more, they can still be his and he will be theirs. But without him, they're defeated. They're slaves once more. And maybe, just maybe, if their pride and self-sufficiency was broken, they would remember that they need God. And this is exactly what happened. They forgot God. God let them go. 
They were defeated. They became slaves. They became under the thumb of other people. And they did what we do. They cried out to God. And God heard their cries. They would get so miserable that someone would remember, wait a second, don't we have a God of our own? And someone would say, yes. Well, why isn't he doing anything about this? Can you just see the conversation in your head? Why isn't he doing anything about this? Well, I don't know. Let's tell him how unhappy we are. Okay. God, where are you? I'm in this mess, and why haven't you fixed this for me? Where are you? What are you doing? Why did you allow me to get to this place? And God responds by doing something interesting. He raises up a judge to be his voice. And the judge always does one thing first. And I shouldn't say always. In a lot of the stories. The judge speaks on behalf of of God. He was the voice of God or she among the people. Part prophet, part interpreter of the law, part military leader. God used this person to be his voice and they would lead the people of Israel into battle and they would win in weird, crazy, spectacular ways against people they weren't supposed to defeat. People with chariots and horses, which they didn't have. People with all kinds of soldiers that they didn't have. And the book of Judges is filled with some fascinating stories. I just have to tell you. Um, The story of Ehud who kills the Moabite king on the toilet. It's true. It's in the Bible. Deborah, who is the first real female leader of Israel. And Jael, who kills the king with a tin peg. I remember that story from when I was a kid. thought it was pretty cool. Gideon, who besides... Deborah was the least likely and most reluctant military leader ever and who God used the most creative way to display his might. Samson, who was the Superman of the Bible, a one-man wrecking machine, who was too easily influenced by the women in his life who did not love God. But here's the thing. The judges were not the point. In fact, with the exception of Samson, they were ordinary, average, below average people in a lot of ways. Gideon was so ordinary that he told God he was the wrong choice and tried his very hardest, just like Moses, to get out of the job. But God finally convinced him to go. But God used these people as another witness to the power of having God on their side. The judges themselves were not powerful. The judges themselves were not powerful. God was powerful. The nation of Israel was not powerful. God was powerful. And God used these ordinary people whose main characteristic was their willingness to listen to him. This was their strength. They remembered God and they would do what God told them to do. I'm struck by the simplicity of that. They would remember God and they would do what God told them to do. They would forget. God would give them up to their enemies. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. They would be led to victory. 
they would follow God again until they forgot. God would give them up. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. They would be led to victory. They would follow God again. And the book of Judges tells us as soon as that judge died, what would they do? Over and over and over again. This cycle repeats itself. Over and over and over again. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this story, this collection, this cycle of things that we see? And there are two main applications that I want us to think about this morning. First, I am uncomfortable with this part of the story, the big story, because I don't like these people. I know these are the people of God, and I know he loves them, but I do not like them. And that makes me uncomfortable because I feel like I am too much like them. I am forgetful. Karen can tell you how forgetful I am. My wife can tell you how forgetful I am. But that's not what I mean. I am forgetful of God. We are forgetful as well. It is so easy to live our lives dancing to a different rhythm, a different song than the one that God is playing. It is so easy to be dependent upon ourselves, to be focused on everything we have to do, and to give God these two hours that we have left as long as we're not too tired or there's not something else going on. When we behave this way, when we make God an afterthought, when we give him what's left, the, the hard truth is that he is not our God. When we push him to the side, when he is less important than other things, when we do not dance to his rhythm, he is not our God. Whatever you might want to say about it, we are serving something else. And maybe we don't have a golden calf and a special pole that we worship, but we're no better. We're no better than that. And perhaps today we are sidelined by things that are pretending not to be our gods. We're not your God. You're running this show. We're not running you. You're in charge. And yet we are slaves and serving all of these things. And this stays this way until we really need God and we call out to him, God, why have you abandoned me? God, why have you put me in this situation? God, I don't know what to do with this mess that is my life. Would you fix this for me? We call out to him and God, to his never-ending credit, does something amazing. He delivers us. Maybe not in the way we want or the way that we expect, but God delivers us. He redeems the situations that we're in. He may not fix it, but he redeems these things. And it stays this way 
until we forget again. And I want to break this cycle. I want to break the cycle. We are called to be the people of an all-powerful, eternal God, which means that our lives should be marked by victory. Now, I want to clarify this for a second. Okay? That does not mean that our lives should be like Mary Poppins or some sort of Disney movie. Because you may not have considered this, but in order to have victory, what must you do? Be in a fight. In order to have victory, you have to be in a fight. You have to have an enemy. There needs to be an opponent. We should be living lives of victory. It does not mean we're not going to have fights. It means that when we have them, God will lead us over those things. And I think our lives can be marked by that if we break the cycle. But the question is, how do we break the cycle? And the answer is painfully simple. If we want to break the cycle, what is the one thing we have to keep ourselves from doing? We have to keep ourselves from forgetting. Keep ourselves from forgetting. We need to, in the positive sense, remember. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Make it so that you can't forget. And do what you need to so that you don't forget. And if that means... You have to write it on your forehead, then do it. And if that means you need it on your arms, then do it. If that means you have to paint a wall in your home, then paint a wall in your home. But do not forget the story that you are a part of. And God's command is do whatever it takes to remember it. Because if you keep yourself from forgetting, you will break the cycle. Secondly, I want us to be a community that remembers and tells our children about who God is and what God has done for us. So often we talk to our kids about God. And we tell them stories, and I'm so glad they're learning the stories that we know and love. Maybe they'll talk about Ehud killing the guy on the toilet. But... Our children should know why God is important to us. I would love it if my sons knew what God has done for Secret and what God has done for Kelly and what God has done for Lisa and other men in the audience as well. I would love if they knew that story. 
They need to know my story better. What God has done for me. Because the thing that just slapped me in the face when I read that passage was, if I don't tell my children about who God is in my life, they will never find out. If an entire nation can be led into the promised land and given, be given overwhelming victory and their children not know about it, and their children not know about it, we cannot assume that our children know why God is important to us. Do you hear me on that? We cannot assume that our children know why God is important to us. If, if Jericho can be overlooked, then we cannot assume that our children understand why God is important to us. We are studying the story, the story of God, the story of God's amazing love for his people. And reading this chapter makes, and hearing the cycle that humanity goes through, hearing what we continue to do, church, it makes the sacrifice of Jesus that much more remarkable to me. The Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knew what we were like. He knew what we were like. And he still sent Jesus. And that's not an excuse for us to be what we're like. That's not an excuse for us. Well, you know, we are broken and hurt people, but God calls us out of that brokenness and out of that hurt. And he calls us to live a new identity where we are his people. He loves us. He delivers us. He gives us victory. And the cry of God's heart in this moment is that we do not forget that. That God allows us to overcome. That God gives us victory over anything that might hold us back. Amen? That God has defeated sin and death. Amen? That in raising Jesus from the dead, we have victory and life forever. And that no matter how we mess up, God will still hear our cries and come to us. Amen? Amen. Let's not forget. Do whatever you need to do to remember. Do it today. When you go home, go to lunch, talk about it at lunch, figure this out. How are you going to live the story and keep it at the front of who you are? My challenge to you this week is to write things on the doorway to your home, to tattoo your forehead, read through the book of Judges. We didn't cover any of the stories. So as a family, read through the book of Judges this week. See what our tendencies are. See where we mess up. And then marvel at the love of God, who, though he was forgotten, refused to go away. He was forgotten, and he refused to go away. That's something to celebrate. And that is our story. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all that you do for us. We are grateful for the story that we are a part of because, God, our story could be any number of other things. But, God, you call us to victory. You call us to live empowered lives. And, God, the way that you call us to do that is to remember you to remember the things that you have done, to remember what your promises are, to remember that you are not just a promise maker, but a promise keeper, the keeper of the covenant, that you sent your son to die for us while we were sinners, that you know what our deepest failures and mistakes are, and you call us to be better than those things, but not just to be better, you empower us to be better to live a life that is characterized as those who are loved and forgiven and victorious. I want to live that way. So help me not forget and empower us to do anything to help us remember. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.